This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, petrifying Paul Anthony Nelson. Yeah, I couldn't think of another one. Uh, and in the virtual studio, I am joined again by frightening Flick Ford. <laughs> Hello, Paul. And joining us for her non-radiothon Primal Screen debut, here to discuss her thumping essential book, 1000 Women in Horror, 1898 to 2018, is former Plato's Cave co-host, author of approximately, I don't know, I, I added them up, 417 <laughs> books on uh, cinema, uh, on, on horror cinema, including found footage films, Fear and the Appearance of Reality, Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study, Masks in Horror Cinema, Eyes Without Faces, Her Devil's Advocates volume on Dario Argento and Daria Nicolodi's Suspiria, her cultography's book on Abel Ferrara and Zoe Tamalis's Miss 45, her examination of Robert, Harvard, Robert Harmon and Eric Red's The Hitcher for Arrow books, as well as the upcoming The Jello Canvas, Art, Excess and Horror Cinema. For mine, Australia's very high priestess of horror, Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Welcome back. Paul, after that introduction, I'm going to say it. I think it's time to get on the beers. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's told us we can. It's it's on. The beers are on and the I am beers. on them. <laughs> that by, the is way, very I, sweet. by the way, I struggle to pronounce your name. It sounds like I've already been well on the beers. It's a, it's a really ridiculously long name. You are forgiven and you are definitely not the first pa- person to mispronounce it. So. <laughs> oh, man. It did good. Thank you. Five out of uh, five intro. I'm on all hyped and buzzing now. So. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like I almost thought I should like announce it like a wrestling. <laughs> the high priestess of horror. <laughs> so as we have for the last seven months of social restrictions and lockdowns in Melbourne, Nam Town, we are here at Primal Screen, have been bringing you our weekly ISO specials, spotlighting fantastic films from various eras, genres and nations that you, yes you, dear listener, can stream or rent in your very own homes. Tonight, as the witching hour is upon us, we will be giving you a Halloween re- weekend to remember by spotlighting three horror films directed by women. Directorial witches, as it were. <laughs> first, we'll awkwardly catch up with old friends. Oh, no, not first. First, we'll lose ourselves in a top-end phantasmagoria with Tracy Moffat's visionary 1993 ghost triptych, The Devil. Then we'll awkwardly catch up with old friends in Karen Kasama's 2015 Shiller, The Invitation. And finally, we'll lose ourselves amongst a toxic friendship with Sophia Takal's 2016 thriller, Always Shine. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, uh, Alex, as long-time listeners of this show's previous incarnation, Plato's Cave, will, of course, uh, know you as... Uh, a former co-host of that show for three years, and among all the books we mentioned in the intro, you've just uh, just released what is to date your magnum opus of sorts, (laughs) which is 1,000 Women in Horror, Um, which I was so excited about when it was announced, both the fact that someone had actually done it and the fact that it was you because I know how passionate and knowledgeable about the genre you've been. Um, So before we jump into the films, I thought we'd just ask you a handful of absurdly long questions to set the table, if that's all right. I'm so into it. I love that you call it my magnum opus because that sounds really posh. I've been calling it my doorstop. <laughs> it's kind of big and chunky and and it's like, you know, there's there's a you know the door keeps flapping open. Quick, get the doorstop. So magnum opus is way fancier. I'm gonna hire you to do my PR. <laughs> <laughs> it's only right and just. Now, 
I, now, this is my, my first question and, and something I've been wondering for a little while. Having followed your career for, for a while and, you know, because in the past, I, I guess I got to know you for your enthusiasm for filmmakers like Dario Argento and Abel Ferrara and such. I've got the feeling that at some point, maybe around 2016, 2017, and I don't know if I, like, I'm sort of, you know, my assuming here, but I'm, I'm not sure. It felt like there was a kind of a reawakening for you in a sense. First, because there was a point where suddenly you teamed with Michelle Carey to uh, co-program the Generation Starstruck sidebar at 2017's Melbourne International Film Festival, which is this brilliantly curated retrospective of female-directed Aussie films from the 80s and 90s, then embarking upon this book, as well as your work with the Alliance of Women Film Journalists and programming with America's leading genre film festival, Fantastic Fest. Was there a specific moment that a a switch was flicked? which set, a, set you upon your path of elevating female filmmakers. And can you recall what that moment was? I think, I mean, it's a really good question in that thinking back, like it predates, I think a lot of people, I can't remember for, I can swear. Can I say, can I swear? Yeah. I'm just like, going to give a warning. <laughs> <laughs> that's your warning. Um, <laughs> incoming swear. Like I think, um, you know, with the Weinstein revelations, um, I think a lot of people just, it was enough. Like a lot of people cracked the shits and it was like I've had it, I've had it, like enough, enough, like enough of these men all the time, everywhere men. Um, and certainly for me that was, you know, part of it. But like you say, like I was starting to get more interested I was really doing this work before even that. I mean, that really compounded, I think, a lot of the energy and the focus that I had on women's filmmaking more broadly. Um, But I think in horror, like I'd always been really interested and, you know, and collected uh, horror made by women because I always felt that it was a really underrated, you know, every listicle that pops up, it's always the same 10 films over and over and over again. So I'd sort of just as a fan had been hoarding and had had a kind of an awareness of films, especially directed by women for a really long time. But um, I think, you know, there's been, there's been writing and film festivals and internationally, you know, people doing great stuff about uh, women, women in horror. Uh, But I think 2014, 2015 was just massive. I mean, we had, we had the Babadook, uh, we had the invitation, which we're talking about tonight. We had a girl walks home alone at night. Um, we had Raw, Julia DeCournau's Raw. Mm-hmm. Like there was just this sudden um, visibility. So I won't say a sudden explosion of women-directed horror because it's always been there. Um, so it wasn't that there was suddenly more of it. It was that suddenly it was more visible and you yeah. could actually go and see it. Um, so I think for me, I mean, I, I it wasn't just horror. Like you said, you know, I was working with Michelle on pioneering women and doing a research project connected to Australian women's filmmaking. Um, at the same time, you know, and I've always loved Elaine May. That was always something that I was going to do was a book on Elaine May, which I ended up co-editing uh, with Dean Brandon, a lovely Melbourne person. So it's not just, you know, she's, she's very famous for comedy. So it wasn't just horror, but I think that um, in a way all of these things culminated um, sort of from that point onwards. And, um, and and I guess this book is sort of the, the final outcome. Uh, not final because I'm still working on this stuff, but it was sort of the logical outcome. Mm. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's almost like, like you say in the book, you know, the book is a beginning. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's, and it's, but yeah, it's, it's a culmination, I guess, of the first phase, shall we say? And it's, yeah, um, it's, and I've got to say, as well as being an A to Z of names, both of both cis and trans women actors and filmmakers of all levels, from directors to composers, you've also inter- included some terrific interviews with some of the women you've spotlighted including deep friend of the of the show, uh, Isabel Peppard, and one of my own favourite people, Mia Kate Russell. The queen, our queen, queen Mia Kate. <laughs> You've worked I, with I, her, yeah? She, she's worked on your films, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, I, um, yeah, she's done makeup and, and stuff with the, uh, on, on our films and um, we love her. She actually just lives around the corner from us. Um, and, you know, yeah. I was in um, Austin last year when Fantastic Fest was on. Uh, Fantastic Fest is like the biggest genre festival in the United States. And Maggie May, Mia Kate, local Melbourne girl, God bless her, mm-hmm. woman, woman, show some respect, Alex. Um, <laughs> her her short film Maggie May played, yeah. and um, people were just white. People just came out of that screening 
and and it was that awful thing you know when you go overseas and people say where are you from and so I'm from Australia and they're like oh do you know this person that's like come on come on there's 25 million of us I had that thing where people were coming out saying oh Mia Kate Russell Australian film do you know her? and it's like yes <laughs> <laughs> like yes there is actually only 10 of us and we do all actually know each other <laughs> yeah. sorry I interrupted you I got excited about our wonderful local filmmaker Mia Kate she's Russell. wonderful I I called her um I remember after her first few years, I got to the uh, the John Waters of of horror, and she just loved it. <laughs> like, I think I'm going to put that on my website. Um, <laughs> now, in terms of profile, I was wondering: is there anyone that you were particularly glad you were able to interview in Spotlight who, without this book, may may not have become known to a wider audience? It's a really good question. I was really conscious um, with the interviews. I mean, some of them are archival. So, um, mm-hmm. Elvira, I interviewed more than 15 years ago. Um, Annabella, the wonderful Annabella, I interviewed when The Love Witch came out um, and she very kindly allowed me to use photos and stills and posters from that film. So some of these are archival. Um, But I really wanted the interviews to be partially people that were big names. You know, people would go, oh, wow, you know, The Love Witch, or oh, wow, Elvira. Yeah, everybody kind of knows Elvira. Even if you're not really into horror, you know Elvira. You think of the boobs and there you go. Um, (laughs) But... I think um, for me I also wanted to have that next to people that weren't so well-known um, to let them be able to tell their stories. Um, there's a wonderful director from uh, Laos called Maddie Do, uh, who's uh, amazing. She's just an extraordinary filmmaker, the only only woman filmmaker in Laos, the only uh, woman filmmaker in Laos, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Um, and her second film, Dearest Sister, was the first film from that country that was, um, it wasn't actually selected for the final list, but it was the first film that was put forward by that country for an Oscar for best foreign language film. Um, And she's an amazing woman. She's just an amazing person and she has an amazing story. And um, I think when you talk about, especially when you're talking about women directed horror, you sort of say, well, there's this amazing, amazing Lao filmmaker called Maddie Do. You know, there's a woman from Lao making horror and people are like, what? Like a kind of comedy. Are you kidding? It's like... Grow up, yes, you know. <laughs> Just because you don't know them doesn't mean they're not doing it. And she's amazing. So it was a nice way to kind of cast a spotlight, not just on well-known people, but also people that might be lesser known to to people perhaps not so familiar with horror. That's that's so true. I love that's one of the things I love about it. Um, after spending the last few years diving as deep into female-directed horror as anyone on earth, uh, what is the number one thing about women's efforts in the genre that came to the Possibly the biggest surprise to you or perhaps the biggest misconception for others? Posh, I, look, I think in a way it was having validated that the archive has done women um, filmmakers um, a, a, a mis- you know, it has not been kind. Hmm. I mean, I sp- I've spoken to women filmmakers who literally don't have a copy of feature films that they've made. They're like, yeah, I had it on VHS and I moved house and it got lost in a box and I don't know. Um, so the cultural, and this is for, you know, not just for women's filmmaking, um, or women's horror filmmaking, this is women's, women's filmmaking in general, but other minorities as well, you know, um, so it's certainly not specific just to horror film, women's filmmaking. And in a way, I think this book is a bit of a microcosm, um, of insight into, um, you know, the other people making films. Um, but so that, that was yeah, that was sort of difficult because it sort of validated what I had a feeling was the case. Um, mm-hmm. But when you kind of get into these nitty-gritty conversations and you try to find films or trace films and there's just no formal archival memory, and that affects popular memory, and that's why we keep getting these same top ten listicles of the same ten films over and over and over again. When there's, um, I mean, I have in the back of the book a filmography of about 700, 750 Women directed horror films, and I certainly haven't been able to access all of them. I don't think that I don't think I would say maybe two thirds of them would probably be available if you tried really hard. Um, so what a that's a wonderful resource, though, for people who are looking to screen and to see whether they could look and you know put more visibility on. Yeah, and look, it's it's this is this is what I really like is that it's a collective effort. So there's lots of people on Letterbox um, who are already um, Letterbox who are already doing these sort of things and. There's a really, there's a great website called Cutthroat Women. Um, so I, I really wanted to make clear in this book that it's not, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the woman in horror book woman because <laughs> I, I, that would be um, really arrogant. Like it would just be super, super arrogant because the whole thing has to come out of a conversation. 
it has to come out of people saying, hey, do you know about this film? Uh, I literally had an email a few days ago from a friend, uh, my friend Abraham Castillo, who's a, an, a, an amazing expert. He, he's in Mexico City. And um, Mexican cinema, Mexican horror cinema is his area of expertise. And he'd um, just discovered, he's like, you know, he thought that he knew the first woman-directed horror film made in Mexico, but then he realised that there was one earlier. So it has to be a discussion. It has, you know, there's no way that one person can do all of this stuff. Um, that's what I love the most about it. And that's what surprised me the most about it is that it has to be a dialogue. It has to be a kind of community effort. And I don't mean like horror community or fan community. I just mean people that are into this stuff community. It doesn't have to be formal. No, no, that's, it's all about opening yeah. everything, isn't it? Yeah. Opening the doors. opening. And the doors. I had to accept that when I did exactly like when I decided to do a thousand women, the big problem was like, it wasn't who am I going to include? It's who am I going to leave out? Mm. Uh, and that's that's the hardest part of it because you want to feel that you've been that you know that you've done the job that was set out for you. And I just had to accept that it, you know there are going to be people that I can't include and that I've forgotten that I haven't found mm. that that I can't find traces of. And I've got a list of them. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, for volume two. Yeah. I like that you, in the intro, you say that like your wish for this book is for people to come up to you and complain only a thousand. <laughs> Absolutely. And one of the nicest things actually being um, young and emerging women filmmakers buying the book saying, I want to be in this. Like, it sounds really corny. Um, there was a producer, uh, a British producer, I think, on Twitter who um, who saw the book and she was all ready to be, she, she sort of posted that she was all ready to be sort of uppity, that she wasn't included in it, and that she was. <laughs> and she was really surprised that she was in there, and I loved that. Like, that was such a buzz. So little things like that. I mean, they're not little, you know, like yeah. these, to me, these women are just as important as Elvira, you know, like yeah. that. just because we don't know them. Um, it's this question of visibility and they're putting in the same work, you know, they've got the same passion um, and women's labour is invisible, like not just in horror film, but across the board. So we need to sort of articulate and, and acknowledge it and label it and say what it is. And, they, and yeah, women work in film behind and in front of the camera. Yeah. I think I've, I think I already flagged with you that um, that once our horror film comes out next year, that my partner who co-directed, co-wrote, co-produced, and stars in the movie uh, is has to be first in volume two. Um. I love I love that. Like I love I love that's like my that's like my dream is that there's people like gumming it. <laughs> so this is just you for the next like for your lifetime now, Alex. <laughs> volume seven, okay. eight. Keep my Google sheet going, just yeah. adding names quietly, weeping. Computers <laughs> crashing over and over. Yeah. It's just like it's bigger and bigger. Now, Flick, sorry, I've as 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 is my white straight cis patriarchal will, I've sucked all the air out of the room. Did you um did you have any questions you'd like to ask Alex? Or no, I'm 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 actually just keen to um I'm so excited with the films that you've picked for us this evening, Alex. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'm just really excited to have a chat to you about these. It's such an honour to have you on the show. So I reckon we get started. Let's do it. Let's dive in. Should we do Bedevil? Perfect segue. So uh, now, listeners, please join us on the couch with beers in hand for our first film. When we lived out here, strange things would happen. Bedevil from 1993 was the first and still to date only feature film directed by renowned visual artist Tracy Moffat. A trilogy of surreal ghost stories inspired by tales Moffat heard as a child from both her extended Aboriginal and Irish Australian families, all concerning characters haunted by the past and bewitched by memories, starting with Mr Chuck about a young Indigenous boy looking after his two sisters and abused by his father, haunted by the ghost of an American GI who drowned in the swamp near his house. Then Choo 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 about a family who lived by a railroad track haunted by invisible trains and a blind girl who died on the tracks years earlier. And Love and the Spin on It, which involves a Greek-Australian family and their relationship to a condemned warehouse inhabited by a Torres Strait Islander woman and the ghosts of two lovers that dance on beyond the grave. Alex, unbelievably, this was the first feature film directed by an Indigenous Australian woman only 27 years ago, and it might be one of the most distinctive films I've ever seen. What about this film bedevils you? It's it's magic. Now, look, I'm I'm always hesitant to say, um, especially with women's filmmaking, like something is the first. 
Um, but coming from an Australian perspective, of course, we're going to talk about uh, Moffat um, in that context. But what I find really interesting is talking to people overseas um, because I'm I'm pretty sure, like I wouldn't, um, I'm, I'm very open to have somebody say, actually, no, there's another. But I'm I'm close to positive that this is the first horror anthology directed by a solo woman. Oh, so wow. instead of having different filmmakers making different segments, I th- I'm pretty sure. And when I say horror, I think we should probably let people know this is this is not this is like um, how would you describe it? It's almost like a kind of fifties ghost story, spooky vibe. It's not it's not like stabbing and blood. Like it's 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 supernatural rather than I think what a lot of people might think of more as traditional horror. Is that and fair to say? Yeah, well, it's, I was, it's, it's yeah. a genre mesh, isn't it? Absolutely. I was actually, I wasn't really, I kind of um, wouldn't have placed this in the horror um, genre, but it's so interesting seeing it through that lens. I actually think you you gain a lot re-watching it through that lens because when I watched it, it was for um, when I taught Indigenous uh, cinema, so I feel like I was always seeing it linked up to that sort of sense of storytelling. So, yeah, I, I, it's amazing that it kind of um, goes into that in such a different way. I think it's it's really interesting to talk to people overseas who have seen the film, um, who know Moffat's work but don't really have the cultural placement of her. I mean, she's easily one of Australia's most important and influential living artists. I mean, the um, she did that great series, what's it called, Something More, that photography uh, photographic series from 89. I mean, there's a reference to one of those photos in the Eminem video, My Name Is. Like, she's hugely influential. Mm. Um, and I, she's one of those people I think people know more about overseas than, mm. than here. Um, and they just approach her in a really different way, I think. So it was really interesting mm. for me to kind of come from this, come from the same kind of experience of, of, of um, being introduced to her work and then almost being reintroduced to her from a different perspective um, and, and having my, my mind blown even further. One of the most interesting things about this film that um, – you know, it, it's really nice to see it out there. You can watch it on SBS. It's on Canopy. Uh, you can view it on Ronan Film's website. Um, this was this played calm the year that uh, Jane Campion won for the piano, um, and this was the same year that a sadly, tragically forgotten film called uh, Broken Highway by a woman called Laurie McGuinness, another yes, Australian woman filmmaker. Yeah, we played that at Pioneering Women with Michelle Carey in two thousand and seven at Teen at MIF. Um, those three films all played Khan at the same in the same year. Like that was a bumper it's, year for women's filmmaking in Australia. It's but, kind of nuts how many Australian women's films played Khan in the nineties. Like you throw um, uh, compare that Sarah to now in there as <laughs> yeah. well, and and the piano, and yeah, like yeah, mm. compared to like so many more, like yeah. like all these films I've only learned, like Broken Highway, like uh, which I yeah. Is is a film that needs a Blu-ray release. My God, you can only see that film on VHS. You might find it at an op shop. It's crazy. This thing played Khan. I mean, I know that we're talking about the Devil, but even even Moffat's work. Like for years, I found that really hard to find. Like her shorts, you know, are just extraordinary. And thankfully, with things like Canopy and and stuff like that, um, them, you know, we oh, can find them. I was just going to say, I was often, like, I was oh, like, sorry, to, no, no, I was, I was just going to say, I was lucky enough to. Yeah, I, I worked at ACME, um, Australian Centre for the Moving Image, for seven years, and part of their Screen Worlds exhibit was yeah. a dedicated booth to Tracy Moffat. So I saw her short Night Cries, which is which is incredible, quite frequently. <laughs> so that was a way to see that for free. And, I think, know. yeah, that often happens, though, where, and especially with, like, Indigenous films where they will they'll either get screened for the first time internationally at festivals and therefore then the the domestic audience is like oh it's it's really well received overseas we might bring it to our shores all kind of similar to what you're saying Paul about it being in a particular setting and then therefore that it gets shown and I think that actually Moffat's film works with that because it's it's so much of a hybrid of like theatre and photography and and visual art and film that I actually found this a really difficult film to to talk about because I don't think you can always use the same codes and like terms that we would we would talk about film you know like she she draws upon so much um theatrical um framing and composition like there's this wonderful repetition of the window and I love the fact that she's so aware of like representation and and the colors and and actually communicating the story way more through colors and the mood of each scene is is it's kind of like she's leaving narrative and dialogue behind in some ways 
Um, I found this a joy to return to. I've, I have watched it a long time ago. And um, I, I just think that kind of beautiful framing and composition and really kind of um, just striking imagery has just, uh, I think it's amazing. I, I really enjoyed watching it through your lens, Alex, of like thinking of this as a horror because um, I thought that I loved how like actually all the stories are tied together by this idea of place and being haunted by by something from the past, like this ghost or spirit. And I, I loved how she kind of, um, you know, you could read it, and I have heard this before, that a lot of Australian audiences kind of read it through this kind of post-colonial lens. But I think actually it's so nice just to be able to pick it apart for this like form-bending hybrid that it is. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, Absolute yeah, you're joy. exactly right. It's not an either-or. Like you can mm. talk, I mean, she's so, you can see in this and, um, and Night Cries as well, they've got this really strong, they almost look like old Technicolor films, like old kind of, you know, yes. classical Hollywood Technicolor films. And clearly she's influenced by that. Mm. You know, there's a really strong, and people have written about this, and interestingly um, it's often people who aren't Australian who write about this, but those works are really strongly influenced by melodrama. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, some, some Australians have written about that influence um, in her work, not just her, her film work but also her photography. Um, you know, she's hugely literate. She's not just screen literate, but she's, you know, visually, there's a, it, it, an enormous depth of um, complexity, I think, yeah. to her understanding of how the how images work. And for mm-hmm. me, Bedevil is just a masterclass because it darts between the first two segments, they have this sort of nostalgic, almost technicolour, old Hollywood look to them. But they're very much Australian, you know, stories with both... Um, you know, Indigenous characters and non-Indigenous characters. So there's that very strong sense of place, like you said. Um, but at the same time, they, you know, those first two in particular, they have flash-forwards to the present moment where people are looking back at these older stories. And I think that's really fascinating. And the second story, uh, Choo 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 Choo, is stars Moffat herself playing a young woman um, who's, you know, she lives in this house uh, sort of isolated and, and with her family and there's a, a haunted uh, it's like a ghost train story, um, but that darts between her as an older woman coming back with all of her mates to that house, to that house that they abandoned. Um, and I love that movement, you know, and the mm. stuff that's in the present is shot uh, realistically, whereas these old yeah. memories are shot in this beautiful sort of, yeah, technicolour dreamscape. Actually, like, just on the... shot like a doco, like they yeah. talk to yeah. camera and, and she calls, there's moments where she actively calls the camera over to talk to them and wipes the lens. When That's my favourite. Yeah. She spits on a tissue and wipes the camera lens. It's one of my favourite parts. It's in the trailer. It's one of my favourite parts of the whole film. There's another segment where she's um, a friend of hers is cooking and they're, they're fighting about how to correctly yeah. cook. I think they're cooking yabbies <laughs> and they're just squabbling about, like, I think they call it bush cuisine. Um, they're just having this, like, and it's it's just such a, I mean, she's funny. This is what I, you know, you would never call this a horror comedy because it's so far from these generic labels. Mm. You know, the word hybrid is really important here, I think. But she's so, she's got such a strong sense of humour, not just in her, in this particular film, um, Heaven. She made this short in 1997, one of my all-time favourite short films, which is her behind the camera at the beach. I don't know if she's at Bondi or somewhere. Just heckling surfers, changing, <laughs> like looking at their butts and like, yeah, show she butt, mate. Like it's incredible. And obviously like the politics of it is there. Like, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the male gaze and the female gaze. So if you want to get into that stuff, yeah, masterclass. But it's also extremely funny. Uh, it's so funny. And she's just giving these dudes <laughs> grief. And it's such a, it's just, she did this photographic series called Fourth. Um, in 2001 on the Sydney Olympics. I'm going way away from horror here. <laughs> but it was about all the people that came forth in the Olympics. <laughs> She's really funny. And I do think that you get that humour in Bedevil and I think it really adds life to it. So you have this enormous visual style, you know, this really intoxicating. I mean, I've told people this is Australia's Suspiria and they think I'm joking and then they watch it and they're like, okay, cool. <laughs> oh, you could totally see that. Actually, just... Yep. The yeah, go, visual, go um decadence of it. And it's just a small note to say, I really, really loved the women in, in this film. Like I think there's so many beautiful, like tender little moments and very funny moments. So definitely worth checking out. And, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll see your Australian Suspiria and raise you an Australian quota. <laughs> <laughs> we also have to give a shout out to Lex Marinos from Kingswood Country who's yes. in this film. <laughs> just felt 
that that was really important to acknowledge. And also, yeah. um, and also Jack Charles, who we um, yes we the other week, and um, yeah, he's fantastic. He's always great. And also, uh, this film and the next film both have red lanterns oh, uh, featuring yeah. prominently. Freaky, <laughs> yeah. Which uh, is a lovely segue. So if you are keen to check out The Bedevil, uh, it is now available to stream free for nothing on SBS On Demand and is also available to rent or buy on Vimeo. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, our very special guest, Alexandra Helen Nicholas, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. It's nice. Thank you. We got them in Mexico. Is that where you've been for the last two years? Some of the time. Did you worry about me? Did you think about me? Yeah. I did. Well, I'm fantastic. I've never been better. You don't have to worry about me anymore. The Invitation from 2015 was the fourth feature film directed by Karen Kasama. Responding to an invitation from his ex-wife Eden, played by Tammy Blanchard, Will, played by Logan Marshall Green, brings his girlfriend to a dinner party, reuniting old friends after two years at the house he and his ex used to share. There, Will relives the trauma of their child's death and becomes suspicious that his ex-wife has ulterior motives for inviting him. And what's with the hippie chick and the weirdo dude in the corner? Flick, as much as we've all missed gatherings over the last few months, did this bring back memories of anxious dinner parties with or without an ex-flame at the table? <laughs> oh, mate, 100%. Look, I... <laughs> I know I was like questioning whether, you know, Bedevil fitted with my idea of what a horror was, but this one, especially that dinner party, uh, fitted with my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think they really, the, t- the two actors who are playing, um, Eden and David, I think perfectly captured that line of um, overly earnest but kind of like forcefully like wanting people to have fun and relax and just go with it. I was just like, this is my own private nightmare. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I mean, this is, I, uh, this is a pretty, um, interesting little setup. I, I think the best thing about this film, and we'll try obviously not to have any spoilers, but I think that there is this beautiful building of tension. And I got to the point where when there is this final climax, I felt really satisfied in a weird way. Cause I was just like, this is my personal hell. And I'm kind of glad with what's happening right now. <laughs> so, um, and I just wanted it to end, um, but, uh, yeah, this is so interesting. Like, Kusama, I kind of forgot um, her her filmography. So I actually really enjoyed Girl Fight. I feel like uh, with Michelle Rodriguez, you know, I love sports films. I particularly love fighting films. And I remember that being a super formative film, like watching it on screen was quite a powerful. It's not a perfect film, but I liked it. And I didn't end up watching um, Aeon Flux, but... Um, Remember Jennifer's body and Destroyer, like she's she goes for these kind of strong female characters. And I think it's really interesting with this, it's kind of more of an ensemble cast. And um, there's something about um, oh, buddy James Carroll Oates, he will always be terrifying to me. <laughs> He's just a very scary man. Um, particularly so yeah, with that monologue. Yeah, totally. So I think that this is a great set. I mean, setting the Hollywood Hills is this sense of like artifice and self-branding and self-help and cult, cultish sort of behaviour. So I think it's really beautiful. The, the, something that perhaps is not so obvious um, is that I actually thought that the relationship at the centre of this between Will and Kira was really believable. You've got a, a sort of hints of trauma and of grief uh, that are sort of interspersed throughout the film. And I thought that the way in which they handled that as a couple was actually really believable and and quite beautifully told in a very simple way so outside of kind of this horror narrative I think that that tapping into the real horror of, of that situation was actually pretty beautiful I I um yeah I really enjoyed this film a lot also I just love um uh Logan Marshall Green he's like the poor man's Tom Hardy but I love him for that um I think I'm the only person who loved Upgrade but I stand by that <laughs> I like Upgrade. Oh, do you? Oh, I, know, I don't think Sal's a fan, maybe. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think he's great. I think he's got that brooding sort of intensity. It's great, yeah. I think this is as close to a perfect genre film as you're going to see. It sort of straddles horror and thriller. 
Yes, um, it's, yeah. it's it's co-written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, who um, uh, Phil is Karen's husband, and you can just feel that uh, they also wrote Destroyer, um, and I love all of Karen's films, and she's had you know better luck with some than others um, in in terms of the uh, freedom that she's been given as a filmmaker and the way that she's been treated by the press. But I think in um, in her last two features, you know, who who she is as an artist is, you know, we've been really able to see her really flourish. Mm. Um, she's tough as nails, and she's got a strong heart, and a, she's just smart as a tack. I can't I can't speak more highly of Karen. I think that she's just an extraordinary woman. But this this film to me, like people talk about it, um, uh, you know, a comedy of. Um, a comedy of manners. To me, this is a horror of manners, <laughs> and I think the thing that that the thing that taps into um, that that you know we're sort of getting at here is there's that that feeling of you know, and people in Melbourne maybe we don't remember it so well, <laughs> but it captures perfectly that experience of being in a social situation that is completely breaking down, but everybody's desperately trying to keep pol- stay polite mm-hmm. and to keep playing the game when it's clear that something is really yeah. falling apart. How and everybody's just sort of that? grinning and burying it. And you, there's something visceral about that. And yeah. they, um, you know, uh, Matt, Phil and Karen just turn that into this extraordinary horror film based around this man. And one of the things I love, I mean, I've just written a book chapter that talks about this film in relation. The thing that I've got a real fascination with is the, the assumption that people have that women filmmakers, you know, whenever you hear the phrase, you know, women filmmakers are so, it's so important because, you know, they tell women's stories. And it's like women filmmakers can tell stories about men too. Thank you. Like you're, they're not the biologically world. defined. Yeah, yeah, like you know you can't. Absolutely. Like I think um, it, it just infuriates me. You know, Lynn, Lynn Ramsey. I mean, you know, in, in you know, is one of the great. You know, I mean, uh, you were never really here. Like, mm. he's an amazing film about masculinity. I and feel that also- the, the invitation is an amazing film about mm. masculinity because we have this man who's trying to deal with his grief. He's got long hair. There's this feminized aspect to him, and he doesn't know how to deal with grief as a man. Mm. But he's not like a big butch man. He's surrounded by these guys, and it's almost like he's trying to find the right slot for his grief as a dude. And there's something about this film that just gets so deep into the heart of that on a really subconscious level. Mm. And it's also a really spooky story. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. That's such a beautiful reading of it, though, through the, the I hadn't really thought about how he'd been presented. I, I was kind of thinking, though, back to what you were saying about female directors and needing to be about female identity. I hate it how it's just assumed that male directors talk about humanity and women talk about you know, being a woman, it's like that's not the case. I think every single woman filmmaker I've ever spoken to, even if they make films that are aggressively about gender politics and that's their passion, um, I, I don't think I've ever once had a conversation with a woman director who doesn't want to, you know, who ha- has not said, I, who doesn't dream of the day that they're not talked about as a woman director, Yeah, just mm. a director. It would be so great if we weren't doing this show about women directors, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, speaking which is kind of paradoxical, but I think, you know, it's we, we need to get yeah. the visibility first and then we can just sort of relax. <laughs> it well, is, it's really it's really fraught. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things I said, you know, well, the, when the day comes when women have as much freedom to make terrible movies as men and, <laughs> and make exactly flops it. as men, then that's the day that we can leave conversations like this behind and just have that's them exactly be it. about things. Uh, speaking of directors, yeah, I think Kasama is a major talent. Like... I'm not as always as crazy screenplays. Um, I think this is my, but this is definitely my favourite of 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 main uh, Hay and Manfredi screenplays. I think this is tight as a drum. I think it's an escape room of a movie. There's just, I agree. It, it's it's a study of living with anxiety, but also this sort of screw turning thriller that reveals the who of its situation early, but leads us on a on a merry and horrifying dances to the what and how. Um, but is also this wonderful exploration of of, of grief, and grief sort of the foundation this film is built upon, and then everything else. Um, and it's you know it's made for a tiny budget and looks gorgeous and mm. is beautifully beautifully um, shot and put together. But I yeah I think. I, I was kind of amazed at the dexterity of the way it sets up and grounds its characters by giving us very sparse details. Mm. There's not very much exposition in terms of who everyone is and what their deal is. 
we've learned very little about everybody, but it's 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 enough. It's enough to kind of give us an, a picture of exactly who these people are and what their relationship is to each other and how they're all struggling with coming together after. And that whole thing of friends expecting people to be the same person, even through though they've been through these seismic, life-changing, horrifying events. Or, or needing them to be the same person as yeah. well. Like that sort of fixed fixed identities in friend groups that can happen. Exactly. This is almost like a, a post-lockdown documentary now that I'm thinking about it. It's like catching up with people that you haven't seen for ages. It's like, oh, no. Uh, just <laughs> So everybody leave. has to watch The Invitation just as a kind of, um, yeah, returning to, <laughs> returning to, to. normality, kind of morality tale. <laughs> Signs to look for if things are going what? wrong at a dinner party in case you've forgotten. Yeah. If somebody says, look, I just want to show you a video, run. Yeah, if it's not a YouTube <laughs> yeah. video, get the hell out of there. Um, so the the invitation is uh, currently streaming on Netflix and is available to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Fetch, and Amazon Video. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. One hundred two point seven. Welcome back to Primal Screen on Triple R with very special guest star Alexandra Heller Nicholas, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Do you mind if I get your your autograph? Oh. Because I it would mean a lot to me. Sure. I'm Sandra. Sure. Uh, nice to meet you. Sure. There's sure. a fountain pen. Okay. I hope you like um, it. <laughs> this is uh, this is my friend Anna. She's she's also an actress. Have I seen you in anything? No, I would be surprised. Always Shine from 2016 is the second feature film directed by Sophia Takal. Actresses and best friends Anna, Mackenzie Davis, and Beth, Caitlin Fitzgerald, take a weekend trip to Big Sur, hopeful to re-establish a bond broken by years of competition and jealousy. Tensions mount, however, leading to an unexpected yet inevitable confrontation, changing both of their lives forever. Alex... We're often inundated with films involving toxic masculinity, so it's almost refreshing to see a film about toxic femininity. I love this film, and I love this filmmaker so much. I can't remember who said it, and I apologise for not citing you, but I heard somebody describe this movie as um, mumble Mumblecore Persona, the Bergman oh, reference yeah. to the Bergman film, <laughs> and it's bang on the money. Like, it's just exactly what it is. It's... It's so strong. Like her her films, um, this was her feature debut, I believe. She, so, so Sophia Takal is an actor, uh, and you, mm. you you know she's been in you know, Joe Swanberg films. She's been in a couple of films with Caitlin Scheel, um, and you know if the first the first ten minutes of Always Shine, I will not describe, but what she does in that first ten minutes with these two scenes that sort of mirror each other. Um, are extraordinary. I mean, it's really extraordinary writing. It's really extraordinary acting. It's incredible filmmaking. And she just gets into the guts of the of the labour involved in having relationships with difficult people, regardless of gender. But she's all of her films are interested in these complex relationships between women. Um, she did a film called uh, New New Year New You for Blumhouse's uh, uh, Hulu series um, a few years ago, and of course she did the Black Christmas uh, remake last year, which was written co-written by April Wolf. Really, she's really interested in these relationships um, between women, but obviously, Always Shine is where that really comes to a head, where it's this very intense relationship between these two women. And again, perhaps like the invitation, I think there's something there that taps into our experience that feeling of having a dead friendship it's Mm -hmm. over and you're just raking over the coals or even a romantic relationship you know and I was thinking when I was re-watching it that that experience that you have where you're in a relationship with somebody and all you do is talk about the relationship (laughs) and it's like the the death knell like you just know and both of you know and it's like all we're we're not actually talking about anything except for the relationship um (laughs) Like that's that's what that's the only thing that we have in common now, and it's it's, it's excruciating to watch. Um, but there's so there's such humanity in this film. Oh, I there mean, is so it, much truth, isn't there? <laughs> it really hurts. Like it really yes. really hurts because I can see they're very different characters, and one of them is perhaps more appealing than the other, um, as as a horror film might <laughs> imply. The dynamics work, but. There's such a truth to both characters that is a really uncomfortable thing to admit, um, mm. I think, when you're watching it. 
Um, and I mean, I can only watch it through my own experience, my, my own gendered experience, but it's like, yeah, I've had friends, like it reminds me very specifically. <laughs> it ended differently, you know, they, <laughs> no spoilers, but yeah, it was a horror film. It wasn't a horror film scenario, but it was simply pretty <laughs> horrific to experience. <laughs> I actually, I also really resonated with this film and I don't know what that exactly says about me. I'm a bit worried. But I, um, the we you know, we don't want to ruin the opening scene, but it's an audition. And um, it actually was interesting. I watched this in the same week that I watched um, Leading Lady Parts, which is like a short film by uh, Jessica Swale. Uh, it came out a while ago. It's available on YouTube. But it basically is these well-known actors, you know, auditioning for the leading role, um, female role. And it's like it's a comedy and it's kind of just funny because there's moments where they're like oh don't oh if you're gonna cry don't ugly cry just like try to look sexy while you're doing it maybe you could like cry in a shower maybe be naked and it's kind of like a you know send up of it but there's so much truth in it and I love that she's used this for the horror genre like how perfect um like this idea of these women and the expectations put on their behavior on their bodies how they respond to each other how they respond with their partners or their potential love interests like that horror is real and it is lived uh every day so I thought that I loved that coupling and in a very knowing way like it's very much like this a direct address to the camera um I really I thought that you performances were amazing and I think that that's what kind of brings the relationship between the two women to life and I loved that at different times I sort of sided with one and then the other and I mm. I feel like I actually had a moment where I was like this is this a fight club sort of situation because mm. that was the film that reminded me of the most because I feel like both of those were different sides of of me and um kind of that comp that competing you know are you being too aggressive are you being too outspoken are you too you know um all of those things where you kind of run through in your head and then it's just like if I was a dude would that be that would be interpreted as oh she's really confident or she she really knows what she's doing and I loved that that was kind of the setup um just a small note I loved the um formal edits like the violence of the edits how they slice through I think it's really clever filmmaking we're talking before about the invitation being economical I think this film is exceptionally economical and also just really um just knows its target and goes there. It's a um, fantastic film. Probably my favourite, actually, of this week, just because it was new oh. and I hadn't seen it, so it stood, stood out to me. Um, yeah, this is um, – I think there's there's really great stuff here. Uh, yeah, that opening is so striking. Um, it's something else. It's. I think there's a lot of great stuff, particularly in the first half, that really, as you've sort of mentioned, Flick, but really beautifully examines the kind of these sort of everyday micro gestures and microaggressions familiar to all women just moving through a patriarchal world, mm. um, and these expectations imposed upon women and how a lot of these expectations are built to almost pit them against one another, um, as well as yeah, as well as yeah, a particularly feminine brand of toxicity toxicity embodied by this flatlining friendship that should have had its plug pulled years earlier um and yeah the the act is a dynamite their whole trip together is this powder keg waiting to explode i wasn't as crazy about it once it becomes a persona movie and i i feel like the air sort of goes out of the movie after that i, I feel like there's this generation of american post new independent cinema what some people call mumblecore that are kind of obsessed with this idea of performance persona and performers like Robert Green, Alex Ross Perry, and particularly to Sophia Takala and her partner, uh, Lawrence Michael Levine, who wrote this. I don't know if, did either of you see Black Bear? Uh, no, I missed a, it. Which screened a myth. This Black Bear is very much a companion piece to this. Mm. Um, and they both do the same things in terms of that, that edit, style which is great which is so unnerving um and and both look at performers and both and both do a riff where um a, a character characters flip at a certain point during the movie um yeah and it, and and i don't know if it's the approach or whether it's not my favorite theme i'm not sure but yeah just left me a little bit cold towards the end it's, it's but i love I the first half I had the same reaction. I think the first time I saw it, and the second time I saw it, I really came around because I think because I knew what was going to happen, I was just processing it differently. Um, and I certainly don't want to give you know give anything away. And it is quite a jolt. I think there is mm. very much a very dramatic shift in tone um, in what happens in this film. And it does happen really quickly, so mm. you don't really get. There's no real build up to it. It just it's sort of like a snap, and then it's you know it's almost like you're watching a different film. But I love this doppelganger thing. 
Um, mm. And this is obviously what it shares, I think, with with persona in that it's just almost this conscious flattening out of women's identities. Mm. It's like, you know, mm. it doesn't actually matter which one of you whose stories yeah. we're following because you're both yeah. just blonde. Yeah. You're just both blonde women. Huh? And, and also, and also blo- you're, you're just blonde actresses. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, and, and to Carl herself is an, is an actor. So it's, it's this almost, there's almost like a conscious effort to be reductive. Mm. Um, but I don't think I, I don't think I saw the film that way on the first time around, but I could, because I knew what was coming the second time I watched it. Mm. I, I think see how it tapped into the politics of yes. the first half of the film. Mm. Um, so it's, and I like films like that, that you kind of experience completely different. Mm. Yeah. That rehearsal that rehearsal scene I think is my favorite. I think it's so exceptional. Just as an acting masterclass to see the shift. I thought that's a stand-up mm. scene for me for sure. Yeah, I think after seeing I think with Black Bear, I think I, I was almost primed. Like I kind of almost saw it coming. I was like, oh, this is what's gonna happen once this moment. But yeah, I'd be interested to come back to it with a, with a sort of in mind and see how much it digs into the politics that were of the first half. I've um, forgotten it. I hadn't seen mm. it since it came out. So it's been, you know, four years since I'd seen it until I rewatched it a few nights ago. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting because I knew it was coming, um, but I couldn't quite remember what. So, yeah, it's it's. I think she's just a superb filmmaker um, and it's really great to see her getting these. You know, Black Christmas didn't really go as great as they'd hoped, but that's a really fearless horror film that's explicitly about, you know, rape culture. Um, it's not, you know, it, it kind of rejects that, oh, you know, there's just one bad egg idea of like the sort of, you know, sorority slasher setup. And it's like, let's talk about the systemic issues here. Let's talk about rape culture. It's really fearless. I, I think she's a really fearless filmmaker. And I do think that as an actor herself, that there's a lot in her practice that's really interesting. So Always Shine is now available to stream on SBS On Demand and Canopy and to rent or buy on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play and Fetch. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with uh, with Flick Ford and our very special guest, Alexandra Heller-Nicholas and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On special Halloween ISO Spotlight on Horror Films Directed by Women, which is brought to you by Alexandra Heller-Nicholas's new book, 1,000 Women in Horror, now available from all good bookstores or all good bookstores online. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 